0: you know, you rub shoulders uh, with one another and you fellowship with one another and sometimes you know the story of how someone came to faith in Christ and at other times you may have never asked that question. By the way, it's a good question to ask in your times of fellowship. Just tell me your story of how you came to faith in Christ and it's a wonderful, encouraging thing to share with one another. But I've actually asked one of our members, and in fact, one of our deacons, to share his testimony. Doug Beck and I were talking uh, a couple weeks ago Uh, And I was asking him about his story and how he came to faith in Christ. And I knew some of it. Um, I didn't know all of the details. And uh, I was just rejoicing in my heart with what I was hearing, how God had done a work in his heart and life and has brought him to the place where he is. And so I asked him if he would please to share with all of us the story of how he came to faith in Christ. So Doug's going to come before the message and uh, encourage us with uh, how God brought him to himself.
1: As Pastor Van der I was talking a couple of weeks, just kind of how to present my, my testimony. I was thinking it's all pretty much starts the same way with everyone. It's just go through life. And as I went through life, I was taught that my good will outweigh my bad. And that's pretty much all I knew about how to be a good person, just make sure I do more good than bad. But no regards to God, no regards to a Savior. And as I started going through school, I was always naturally gifted and better at the math and science side of things, not the English, so don't ask me to write you anything. (laughs) So, um, but as I went through school, like I learned from a public school, didn't learn about God, didn't learn about the creator, just evolution, the big bang theory. I just went with it, I didn't think about it. And then when I got to college, decided to get my degree in physics. And as I started learning more and more about physics, the more and more I knew I didn't know. It's like just some things didn't work. Some things didn't make sense to me. Some some things I would spend literally days with the professor be like, but why? But why? It's like when you take quantum mechanics, there's you get a, well, it could be here or here. Well, that wasn't good enough for me. It's like, which one is it in? It's like, well, we don't know. I'd be like, but why? <laughs> why don't we know? Like, why can't we determine where it is? And my professor would be like, well, it's up to the big man upstairs. And I was like, this is this guy has a PhD in physics. He's been teaching physics for 30 years. My favorite professor in college was just the big man upstairs. Kind of was confusing to me. So it's like whatever, and then I started talking to a cute girl in the physics program, and she was just telling me stuff. She was going to Bible study and stuff, and I was talking about that, and I was like, that, well, that makes sense. I mean, I mean now, I mean now I know why we should be a good person. Like, so I started going to the Bible studies and learning things. And one of the Bible study topics was how to explain why the Grand Canyon can happen in thousands of years versus millions of years, which totally blew me away because I always was heard millions upon millions of years this happened. So it's just kind of thinking. So the summer of 2012, I put my faith in Christ and I trusted him as my Savior and bowed up. Seven months later, I married that cute girl, so it turned out pretty
0: good. uh. Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to consider Acts chapter 9 this morning. Acts chapter 9, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 580, at least beginning on page 580. Acts chapter 9, we'll read the passage here in just a moment. Before we read the passage, let's just kind of rehearse in our minds where we are. Now, you'll remember that we, at the outset of our study of the book of Acts, we, we commented that Luke was the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which really was intended as a sequel, as a follow-up to continue uh, the narrative of what Jesus Christ was doing. And in fact, Jesus Christ is the main character in the book of Acts. The Spirit and Christ are, are, are really is the main character as he continues the work because the, the, the human character changes throughout the story. And in fact, here in the book of, in chapter nine, which we're considering this morning, is really a turning point. The attention moves from Jerusalem to what's going to be happening under the ministry of Paul here. In, in chapter 9 and following. Now, you're familiar with the book of Acts, so, so this is not a surprise to you, probably, all right? But what happens in chapter 9 is now a twist. It's a, a sudden change of events. It goes The story goes in a very unexpected direction, and the reason it is so unexpected is because of what has happened in chapter 6, 7, and 8, right? You remember that persecution is now ramping up. There's this new fledgling group, the Holy Spirit has come and has moved mightily, Uh, Pentecost takes place, thousands are saved, the church is taking off like wildfire, and the Jewish leaders, the ones who had, had sent Jesus to the cross through their own manipulation of the Roman system, these same Jewish leaders now set out to destroy this new what they see as a cult this new small group within judaism that eventually came to be known as christianity and you remember that that the persecution ramped up its first you know peter and and john are thrown in prison they're ordered to no longer preach you remember all of this the the angel miraculously sets them free but that's that's just the beginning because in the in the Passages that we just came through, what happens? We have the first martyr. Stephen, a deacon in the Jerusalem church, is a faithful messenger of the gospel and he meets with resistance, so much resistance that he he stands before the Sanhedrin who then run him out of town and they stone him to death. And of course, as we mentioned in a discussion, we were talking about this afterwards, um, the, the Roman authorities kind of, kind of turned a blind eye to this. Even though it was an unauthorized execution, they kind of turned a blind eye. They just wanted to keep the waters calm, and they had invested interest in this group of Christians kind of going away too, because they were disturbing the peace. So we've just seen Stephen killed. In chapter 7, we're told in the beginning of 8, now Saul was consenting to his death, right? So, in chapter 8, we had been introduced to this young man, probably barely old enough to be part of the Sanhedrin, so likely in his early 30s, who was a rising star within Judaism. He He was a great intellect. He was of great influence. He had the right pedigree, and he was a rising star, and he was going to make a name for himself as a leader amongst the opposition to this this subversive group who followed Jesus of Nazareth. And so, he sets out to do this, and this is where we begin in Acts 9, right in the middle of this context of growing Persecution, we see in God's Word, chapter 9, follow along with me as I read, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And he said, uh, excuse me, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here am I, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Father, use your word now in our hearts, teach us through it, convict us by it, and Lord, use these moments that we have together in considering your word to make Yourself great in our eyes and help us to respond rightly in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Did you read some good literature when you were in high school? Did you read all those interesting stories and classic novels? And Do you remember, do you remember the short stories? I, I remember some of those very poignant short stories. I think, I think O. Henry was perhaps one of my, my famous short story authors but then there are the, kind of the, the creepy ones, like the Edgar Allan Poe stuff. You remember reading a story by Richard Connell called The Most Dangerous Game? It was about this man named Sanger Rainsford, who was a famed large game hunter, who was, who was on his ship, on his yacht, on his way to, um, to, to hunt off the coast of South America, and as he was making his way, he fell off his boat, and as a strong swimmer, he was able to make his way to a nearby island. you remember this story? And he soon discovered that the island was populated, Uh, although it seemed isolated, there must be someone living there because he heard gunshots, and he made his way eventually to find this house. Where he met General Zaroff, I, I guess is how you pronounce it, Z-A-R-O-F-F, who invited him in for a good dinner and began to tell him about the newest the newest game that he was hunting on the island. And in conversations, Rainsford begins to realize that General Zaroff is is excited about hunting. This new species of game that can that is cunning and and can reason and has great dexterity. And Rainsford thinks this is some sort of a morbid joke. Only to realize that this is no joke at all, that he himself, the one who was the hunter, has become the game. The one who was the hunter is now the hunted. And the rest of this story is about how Zeroth sets him off in the woods, gives him a head start, and now the hunter has become the hunted. I won't tell you how the story ends. I don't want any spoilers. Right? But if you read the story, it's a very interesting and somewhat scary uh, sh- story. The most dangerous game. right? That the whole theme of it is this hunter has become now the hunted. Well, in a much higher and more spiritual sense, in chapter 9, we see the hunter become the hunted. This one Saul, who has set his, his fame on hunting down Christians, is now being hunted by the mightiest of all hunters. What we see in this passage is that God is at work to miraculously save those who yield to Him, God is at work to miraculously seek and save. So, how do we see this? Well, we see a couple sections here in what we read. We see, first of all, God is at work to pursue and miraculously save. So, as we take this one part at a time, we see in verses one through five, God at work to miraculously. pursue and miraculously save. So we saw it in verse 1, then Saul, right? You remember Saul? We've introduced him to you already. Of course, we know him more by his Greek name, which is Paul. That's kind of more commonly how he's referred to in the New Testament. We met him back at the stoning of Stephen, chapter 7 and 8. So Saul is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, verse 1 tells us. Right, this is very colorful language to, to indicate to us that Paul is so intent on hunting down Christians that he is, he is mumbling their threats. That their murder has become the very breath that he breathes. He is set to murderous intent to squash out Christianity. So what does he do? The last part of verse 1, he says he went to the high priest and asked, letters. Now, we've seen the high priest position several times already in the book of Acts. This is a very powerful position, and the high priest has the authority to purge falsehood. And so Saul is here asking for permission to hunt down this, this cult as he thinks it is. Now, he says he's intending to do it, verse 2, from, from the synagogues of Damascus. Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. So, in those days, that would have been about a week's worth of travel. And remember that at this time, Christianity is, is still in many ways a subset of Judaism, right? So, devout Jews and proselytes who had come to faith would still be meeting, and in fact, they would, they would even be teaching and evangelizing in many synagogues. They're spreading the message that, hey, the Messiah has come, and this is who he is, and this is how he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. This is the one that we've been waiting for. So they're preaching this message in large part to a Jewish audience in the very synagogues. And so Paul is saying, we've got to get rid of that. We've got to stamp that out. And so he asks for permission from the high priest to go capture those who are of the way, right? It says here in verse 2, so that if you found any who were of the way. Now, this phrase, the way, um, is an early, very, very early term for Christians. Uh, Eventually, they came to be called Christians in Antioch. Uh, That term kind of caught on and really is what's carried throughout the centuries, So we don't see this term the way a lot. By the way, there is a modern cult that was founded in the 1940s that called itself the Way, but by and large, the term hasn't been used in that those intervening years. Uh, The the early on, this is what Christians were called, and and it makes sense, right? Jesus says, "I am the Way," and so so these people are the people of the Way. Okay, so this is this is who Paul is hunting down. We would we would probably simply refer to them as as Christians. Or we'll also see them referred to in the book of Acts as disciples. And so he he asked for these these letters, this permission slip, if you will, from the authority, the religious authority. And he says, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We're at verse 3. And he journeying came to Damascus. So as he approaches the city, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven... Verse 4, he fell to the ground and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So there's this blinding light, he is, he is thrown to the ground, and he hears a voice, but he's unclear on exactly what's happening. And so in verse 5 he says, who are you, Lord? Now this is not the term Yahweh, Jehovah, this is, the, this is a surname, a, a title of respect, Obviously, whatever, whatever person or force is doing this is someone deserving of my uh, humility. So, he refers to him as Lord, who, but he doesn't know who he is yet. I'm sure he has some suspicion that this is divine. Who are you, Lord? To which the response comes in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Okay, now it's, it's, it's worthy of note here that Jesus refers to Paul's persecution of the church as persecution of he himself, right? Jesus doesn't say, I'm Jesus, and those are my followers that you're persecuting. This will develop into the doctrine that Paul teaches of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and when you attack the body, you've attacked Christ, it begins right here. So, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. So, what Jesus reveals in this dramatic moment, Paul learns immediately a few lessons, right? He learns, first of all, that Jesus is alive. I mean, this one that they have killed and, and, and according to the rumors has been raised again is alive and well. And not only that, but he is in glory. Jesus is God. He is seeing Jesus in his glorified state. And so Paul immediately learns not only is Jesus alive, but he is everything that he claimed to be. Jesus is God. And at that point, Paul undoubtedly realizes that he is terribly wrong. He is terribly mistaken as he attacks this small group who are the followers of this Jesus. I mean, Paul's entire framework is thrown upside down in just a moment of time. Now, keep in mind, Paul is a powerful and influential man. He's part of the the aristocracy of his day. He has Jewish pedigree. He's been trained by the famed Gamaliel. He is personally connected enough to those that are in charge that he is able to go and get permission to stamp out Christianity. And in fact, his reputation is widespread. What do, we, what do we read when Ananias is told by God to go talk to this guy? Wait a minute, I've heard about this guy. I mean, he's, he's famous or rather infamous. We know who this guy is. His, his reputation has been spread. I mean, this is no minor player on the scene. He has all the cultural clout of any famous celebrity that might come to your mind. He has all the political connections of a respected senator, and he has all the murderous intent of a tyrant. This is Saul. Yet, God stops him in his tracks. He throws him to the ground, and he directly confronts him Paul wrestled with almighty God and you don't wrestle with the almighty and win and that was the lesson that Paul learned as he is now groveling in the dirt before this blinding light that is the glory of Jesus Christ when you think about it this is it is miraculous because there was probably no one in that day less likely than Paul, Saul, to become a Christian. Which leads me to a very important point. I mean, if you had lived in the early church and you know you'd been standing around in the street after your after your worship service, you probably would not have heard anybody say, Hey, you know, I think that I think that Saul he's really under conviction. Right? You wouldn't have heard anybody say, you know, I think. I think God's going to do a great work in that Saul. He's got real potential. Right? <laughs> this is not what you would have heard the early church say. But that's exactly what was happening. Now, we get various details of the story from this account here, and then two times in the book of Acts, Paul, uh, Paul Saul, recounts his testimonies. We see it in Acts 22. And we see it again in Acts 26. And so we get various details from all of these three accounts. And in those other passages, Paul recounts Jesus saying, it is hard for you to kick against the, the pricks or the goads. The image here is of an ox, right, who is, who is pulling a plow. And the master has in his hand this ox goad and he's pricking the backside of of this ox to get him to go, right? And then, and then the ox doesn't like that, so he does what? He, he kicks at it. He, he tries to get the master to stop, and we all know that's a futile effort, right? So as the master pokes him, he kicks back, and this image is what Jesus is referring to. He says, yeah, this is, this is hard. You keep kicking against me, That's hard. You see, God is at work. But Paul is kicking against it. He's resisting. He's fighting what God is doing. So, there's this dramatic conversion. And it points out something to us that is true of every conversion. God hunts us down. He reaches out to us. God initiates salvation. Francis Thomas, the 19th century poet, said it this way. Let me say this first, preface to that. When I say something like God hunts us down, right, God pursues us, God initiates salvation, I wonder for a moment, does that bother you a little bit? I mean, does it bother you to think about God in those terms, as the one who, who, who tracks us down and brings us to himself? Well, my friend, that's the way the scripture presents it. In fact, it may seem harsh to you, but if I, you know, at the, the outset of the message, I told you this is from, from hunter to hunted, to refer to God in such a way as a, as a hunter. But think about it this way. Francis Thomas, who I just referred to, said it this way. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And His compulsion is our liberation. In fact, Francis Thomas wrote an extended poem called The hound of heaven, which speaks of God's spirit as a hunting dog that ruthlessly tracks down and pursues his prey. You see, we love him because he, what? He first loved us. And when we begin to think of our salvation as something that that we did for ourselves, Look at how good I am. I I tracked God down. We're foolish. We fail to realize that God is lovingly, patiently, dogmatically pursuing and bringing people to himself. We are saved only because of God's initiating work. And so because of that, you and I don't really know all that God is up to. We don't know at whom he is in work, at work. We don't know what surprising or even miraculous work of grace he plans to do. So I wonder this morning, who do you know that seems beyond the reach of grace? Who do you think will never come to faith in Christ. Who are you tempted to write off as, as beyond the love of Christ? I don't know about you, maybe you don't do this, but, but at times I am tempted to think, well, that person's never going to get saved. No, pastor, we never think that. We never have that thought flash our Right? But the fact is that I know people who are, who are genuine and sincere and serving believers who when I met them, I thought, nah, not going to happen. Are you ever tempted to think that about someone? Yeah. If we learn nothing else from the conversion of Paul... May we learn to never assume that someone can't or won't be saved. Think about it this way. Have you ever thought about this? You can never give the gospel to the wrong person. You can never give the gospel to the wrong person. Eh, shouldn't have done that. You can never pray for the wrong person to come to faith because no one is beyond the reach of God. So what we see in this passage is that God pursues rebels. We also have to see here, to be honest, to be fair with the text and with all of Scripture, that salvation in Scripture is a matter of God's initiative and of man's response. Within the circle of God's sovereignty is human response. And we see both in this passage. So let's turn now to Paul's response to God's overwhelming and miraculous intervention. So we saw in the first five verses that God is at work to pursue and miraculously save. We see here beginning uh, in verse 5 that God saves when people yield to him. So according to Paul's retelling of the story later in the book of Acts, what is his response? Lord what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go to the city, you'll be told what to do. So Paul is now obedient to the exact instructions of this one that just a few hours earlier he hated. And so in verse 7, we see the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice. But seeing no man, when we put a couple of the narratives together, what we kind of figure out from the language, in the original language, is that the men heard a voice, but they didn't understand the speaking, only Saul did. It could be because uh, it, it, there was a providential means by which God uh, made it so that Saul could understand and those around him could not. It could also be just as simple as the fact that that Paul later says that God spoke to him in Aramaic, in in the Hebrew tongue, and it could just be as simple as that the men around him didn't speak that language, that God was speaking to him in his boyhood language. So for whatever reason, the men around him, they they hear this voice, they, they know this is not a hallucination that Paul is... Is, uh, is having, but that there's a physical phenomenon that is taking place, but they don't understand the conversation that takes place. So, then in verse 8, Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, right? So, he opens his eyes, and he's blind. He can't see. They led him by the hand. They brought him into Damascus. Now, isn't that ironic, <laughs> right? He was headed for Damascus, to stamp out Christianity, right? To capture Christians. And here he comes into Damascus being led by the hand, blind. And we'll soon meet the Christians to be sure, but not in the way that he had thought. Verse 9, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul, this paragon of proud aggression, is reduced So fumbling around, being led by the hand for three days, doesn't even eat, but just cries out to God. He was humbled, yea, even humiliated. His entire theology had been reordered. So this is what we call conversion. This is an about-face. It proves the truth of the gospel. In fact, in the case of Paul... It helps to prove the authenticity of Christianity. I mean, the, the person and work of Jesus himself, and particularly the resurrection, and, and post Jesus, the, the conversion of, of Saul, are really some of the key markers, the key evidences of Christianity. And this is why scoffers and skeptics have tried to erode those two points because on those rise much of the gospel now your conversion may not be as dramatic as this damascus road experience but make no mistake god is at work to the same effect to break our independence and rebellion and bring us to dependence on jesus christ this is at the heart of the gospel because this goes to the question of repentance Repentance is when we turn from our way, from, from my way, from my own sin and self-dependence and my way of thinking to God's way. When, when Paul was on his face in the dirt saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was saying essentially, my way is wrong. That's repentance. That is turning from our own sin and self-dependence. You, you heard Doug's testimony just a few moments ago and I I really appreciate him sharing that with us. And God did some marvelous things to bring about his recognition of a need for savior. But we started off by saying, I had always thought, I had learned, I had depended on the fact that I've got to do more good than I do bad. And my good must outweigh my bad. That's that's human thinking. That is not the gospel. That is not what God says. God says, by, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Depending on Christ plus what I do is not depending on Christ. We all must come to the point where we realize our own way, even our good ways, even our religion, is something that we must abandon. And so I ask you the question this morning, have you ever come to the point where you have repented, you have turned from your own sin and self-dependence? to depend completely on Jesus Christ, if you've never come to faith in Christ alone for salvation, we pray that today will be the day that you do that. Any of us who are members of North Hills would be happy to sit down with a Bible to answer your questions and help you to know how you can have assurance that your sins are forgiven, that you have a home in heaven through repentance and faith. Well, Paul is exercising, Saul is exercising repentance and faith. This is conversion. This is a a turnaround. I very distinctly remember a, a conversation a few years ago. This is not someone who is who is part of our church and hasn't been for a long time. This is very early on when we were, were starting this church. I remember a conversation with a believer. It was actually in the context of a of a small group, where the notion came up about a certain category of sinner. A, a very a very vile sin that most of us would just turn our nose up at. And and this this class of sinners was being discussed, and this gentleman was discussing them as if they were beyond the reach of grace. With sentiments like, well, I don't think that person could ever be saved. And so I I started to probe into the reasons and and ask questions and and, uh, solicit some understanding of why this man would say something like that. And as we as we probed into the reasons that under, underlie that statement, it became clear to me that he saw himself upstanding, decent folks who are kind of part of cultural Christianity in the Bible Belt as somehow able to be saved because they weren't that bad. They weren't that kind of bad. And I was struck with the question as I had this conversation, does this professing believer even understand the gospel? Because if he doesn't even realize the seriousness of his own situation apart from Christ, does he really understand our sin and a Savior? My friends, if if you think that you can be saved because you're not as bad as fill in the blank, You haven't gone as far as. You don't understand your own need for a Savior. You don't understand your own depravity. We must understand that every one of us are condemned before God. But God in his mercy and grace has provided a way of salvation for those who will turn in faith and repentance. How does Paul refer to himself later in life? As the chief of sinners. And so we see here God doing a marvelous, miraculous work, Paul yielding to that work in repentance and faith. We see one other thing here in verses 10 and following. We see that God uses ordinary Christians to accomplish his work. So in verse 10, we meet a man named Ananias. By the way, it's kind of neat. Ananias means God is gracious. I wonder if Paul in those days that he was blind and praying. I wonder if he initially thought, this is it. God's just going to kill me in this state. I wonder what went through his mind before before God revealed to him that someone was going to come and restore his sight. Now, God had great plans for him. That's clear in this passage. but, But initially, he didn't know that. I also wonder if it went through his mind, why didn't God just kill me? Right? Why didn't just lightning bolt from heaven? Boom. You're gone. Problem solved. No more persecutor. So God is gracious. Ananias. I mean, he is a manifestation of God's grace. So God comes to Ananias in a vision. He says, Here am I, in verse 11. So the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight. Straight Street, I'll get it out in a minute, Straight Street (laughs) was the main east-west avenue in Damascus in that day, and in fact, uh, portions of it still exist, you can see it today. He says, go to Straight Street and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying, and by the way, the, the verb tense of praying here is this idea of persevering ongoing prayer. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come in and put his hands on him so he might receive his sight. Now, verse 13 is humorous to me. Maybe, maybe you don't find the humor in it that I do. And Ananias said, he says essentially, Lord, that Saul, I mean, like, are you thinking the same Saul that I'm thinking? Like, the, the one who is famous for hunting down Christians, like, that same, we're talking about the same guy here? that's what he's saying in verse 13. Uh, uh, Lord, are you sure? Uh, I've heard about this guy from many people. He's done a lot of harm to the Christians in Jerusalem. And by the way, his reputation precedes him. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. And the Lord says, yes, that's the one I'm thinking of. I've got big plans for him, right? Verse 13 or verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 15. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. And by the way, verse 16, he's going to have to suffer a lot too. I have, I have divinely prepared him for exactly the ministry that he is going to have because he is going to have to suffer many things for my name's sake. So Ananias did exactly what he was told. Verse 17, he entered the house, laying hands on him said, Now watch, this, this is beautiful. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I mean, this guy, three days ago, was Saul the persecutor. And through God's miraculous work, he has been transformed, he has been regenerated, and he's now Brother Saul. He is part of the family of God that he had been attacking. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the, on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's healed, verse 19, 18. He is then baptized. And then verse 19, he, he takes food and spends some time there with the disciples in Damascus, not at all with the same arrangement that he had been planning on when he set out on his journey. Here's the thing that I that think that's interesting here. Chrysostom, In one of the early church fathers, in one of his messages, points it out this way. He says, God did not send an important church leader, but Ananias. He calls him him no very distinguished person. Ananias was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He wasn't a deacon. He was simply, as Paul would later describe him, a devout man, with a good reputation among Jews and Christians. He is what we would call just a good, faithful Christian. And I just think that's kind of neat. Because when, when Paul, when Saul, is on the road to Damascus, he says, Lord, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now, here's what I want you to do. Could not Jesus have preached the gospel to him? at that point absolutely but what did he do he sent him to average joe church member who who healed him who baptized him who who told him the word of the lord and that's kind of neat because even though god is doing miraculous things all around us even though he is doing wonderful things to bring souls to himself guess what He invites you and me to be a part of the work that he is doing. God has chosen you and me to carry the message of the gospel, even to those whom we think are beyond the gospel, even to hard places, even to hard people. Paul, Saul, was not a person that we would look at in chapter 8 and say, I mean, we know the whole story, right? But, but we would not have looked at him in chapter 8 and said, Hey, this guy, he's going he's gonna to change the world for Christ. But God had bigger plans. And God intervened. And God even used Ananias to be an expression of his grace. God has called us to reach hard people. He has called us to go to difficult places. And to be a part of the miraculous work that he is doing. Now, on that note, I want to plead with you not to miss next week. Next week is going to be a special, special treat. We have a gentleman coming by the name of John Hutchison who is with a mission agency that specializes in taking the gospel to hard places. Places that you and I would look at and say, well, let's go to someplace easier. Let's go to somewhere that's more receptive, and you are going to be ex- energized by, inspired by, encouraged by the, the ministry that is taking place under, under Frontline Missions is the name of his mission, so please do not miss next week. And I, and I told uh, Brother John in an email, I can hardly think of better timing for us as we consider the book of Acts for him to be coming next week and talk to us about what God is doing in hard places. with with what we would characterize as hard people. Because even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of difficulty, God is blessing the church richly. And right in the middle of all of this, He saves, He hunts down, He brings to Himself the very one who is most aggressively persecuting Christians. May we be reminded this morning that God is calling us to participate in His work. And what is that work? God is at work to miraculously seek and save when people yield to him. Lord, we thank you for this marvelous example in your word of how you are at work. We praise you, Lord, that we have the opportunity, just like Ananias, to participate in the work that you are doing. Continue to take this message and drive it deep within our hearts. Help us to understand your work and how we can participate in it. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord. Here's what I'm asking you to do in, those, in these moments. First of all, I'm going to ask you to confess any sin that God has brought to your heart. And I wonder this morning, do you have, if you're a believer this morning, do you have in your heart, in your mind, someone that, that perhaps you, you brushed off, someone that perhaps you, you dismissed as, as beyond the reach of grace, that God is calling you to be faithful in giving the gospel to? I wonder this morning, would you just identify that person in your own heart and mind and ask for the strength and help to continue to be faithful in presenting the gospel? And then as we pray together, will you just ask God to use you like he used Ananias in some simple way, to speak the right word, The right person at the right time and participate in the work that he is doing. Lord, we are thankful for your word this morning that reminds us of so many lessons. There are even lessons woven into this text that we have just barely touched on or not touched on at all. And just, Lord, help us. Help us to think about the important message that is here that that you are doing a work, that you continue to. To build your church through these surprising, these unexpected, these miraculous means. And Lord, may we rejoice that we get to participate. Lord, we rejoice as believers here this morning that our salvation is no less miraculous. Perhaps the circumstances around it are different, but the fact that you would think of fallen man, that you would condescend to us and you would save us, may we rejoice every bit as much as we would if we were Saul. Now, Lord, use us in your service. We offer ourselves to you for the furtherance of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.